the very last song. So we're like in the middle of our series this summer. So we're gonna jump all the way to the end of Psalms because uh, that makes sense, right? Um, and we will kick things off with that. Um, is anybody tired? Yeah, right? Okay, it's not just me. Like I've got like a five-month-old at home who he started like waking up at five in the morning to talk to himself, but like he doesn't know words. He just like, blah, 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 for like, I don't know, just until we do something about it, which sometimes takes a little longer than maybe it should, but like it's five in the morning. Like, so it's not just me. But also like summer in Phoenix is rough. I mean, we know, right? The reason nobody, like, they, like I grew up in Phoenix. I'm not kidding. Like most people try to bail as soon as they can, especially around this weekend, right? Long holiday weekend. You want to get up north to Flagstaff where it's a little cooler or further north. You want to go to San Diego. Like, and so if you guys are new here, like, Welcome. We're glad you're in the city. We're glad you're at BBC. Um, but like, it's not a Phoenician thing to stay in the valley during this heat. As much as we like, oh, it's a dry heat. It's not that bad in Phoenix. You have air conditioning. No, we just leave when it gets this hot. Like, <laughs> so we're glad you're here to worship this morning, but it's exhausting, right? We have the summer heat. We have whatever's going on in your life, uh, whatever's going on in our world. Like, it's, it's reality. Like, we're tired. I'm tired. And it's been a year, right? I mean, it's been a year and a half, for real. Like, that's just not been easy. And maybe, like, Phoenix seems to slow down because you kind of lose your snowbirds, you lose the tourists, and it's just people that are going to work every day, but life doesn't really slow down, right? If you're here, if you're living here, uh, you're, you're going to work every day, you're trying to pay your bills, maybe you're dealing with your kids, especially when they're out of school, it kind of takes a little bit more effort and energy out of you to plan their schedules, keep them busy during the day too, uh, whether it's sports or whatever other things you've got going on for them, right? Life is difficult. And then of course, you've got like relationships, you, you've got your family, your friends, you've, you're just trying to manage things in your marriage like, and maybe things are difficult or you have a difficult relationship that's also weighing down on you, keeping your mind busy, keeping you up at night. Like it, it's both ends of the candle you're burning now because you're just trying to manage everything. And then of course, like I said, it's been a year. I mean, political scandals and, and judgment and then debate about our, our justice system and then cancel culture in general, like someone else is always just getting canceled uh, politically, uh, socially. Maybe you feel just the pressure of that because your Aunt Karen keeps commenting on your Facebook posts. I don't know, right? But like, it's hard. Like life is hard. It's life is not easy. It's fast paced, it's busy, and it's exhausting. So I'm tired. I mean, honestly, just like we can't, we don't have a live stream this morning. So uh, because the internet's down. So like when I came here this morning, we were trying to like figure out why the fire alarm was going off and like get the internet back up because things happen. It's just life and it's tiring. It's difficult. Uh, Thomas Merton, who you don't know who he is. He's a priest from the fifties. He wrote this. He said, the rush and pressure of modern life is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. He wrote that in the 1950s. 70 years ago, life was too busy, too rushed, too hurried, too much stress and pressure. Imagine what he would think today. It's too hard. He says, our way of life claws us from the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Our way of life is one that keeps us distracted, keeps us busy, keeps us hurried. I mean, we have pressure at work to make sure our calendars are filled with meetings that could have been emails and with meetings that could have been phone calls and, and, and then actually trying to get our work done. Uh, and then you're at school. I mean, I was just talking to someone before this service, like they doubled up his workload. So he had like multiple classes where he's doing like 32 credit hours for a summer session. 
right? Like nuts so stuff. It doesn't make any sense, but that's the world we live in. If you're not busy, you're not trying. But that's exhausting. And the worst part about that is that the busier we are, the more stressed we are, the more difficult the relationships in our lives are, the less we think about God the less we take time to pray, the less we feel like we have time to sit down and read the Bible. And then we just feel guilty about that, especially as Christians, like, oh, I need to be doing this more. I need to be studying this more. I need to be praying more. I should already have done this. I should already know this. I should already be better at this. And then the temptation to sin comes, whatever temptation that may be, the escape, the the drinking, the sex, the pornography, whatever it is, like it just comes and attacks us because that's the easy out, right? That's the relief. Sitting and watching Netflix for five hours at night instead of taking some time to sleep Right? Whatever it is, it just pulls at us. And so we wake up exhausted, caffeinate ourselves and continue to move on, trying to get through the day because we're too tired to do anything else. Too tired to even think about how to make a change sometimes. Are you excited yet? <laughs> right. So Psalm 150, I think, has the answer. Right? Because the reality is this isn't a problem for Americans, this is a problem for people. And the problem is sin. And we usually think of sin as this like little like things that we do wrong. Like I lied to my mom about going out to that party that night or, or maybe a little bit bigger, like I lied to my spouse about why I was working late or, or you know, really big things like adultery, murder. Like we think about the bad things that we do as sin, but sin is so much more like comprehensive. We talk about having a sin nature that comes from Genesis 3, the idea that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they said, God, we've got it from here. We know what we're doing. We're gonna go this way. We're gonna make our own life, make our own path, make our own happiness. We got it covered. That's what sin is. And we have the same sickness in us. Right? We, we have the same temptation in our flesh. We have the same uh, perversion in us to say, you know what, God? We're good. Right? Sin says forget about God. Make your own path, make your own way, make your own identity. God doesn't exist. God is dead. God doesn't matter. That's the culture that we live in, but that's the culture that every human being lives in because in every culture that you see, there's idols. Whether that's literally statues that people worship or just like money and the power that that might give you or the security that that might give you or the fame that that might give you. It's things that infect our hearts, calling us to worship that, calling us to seek after that, calling us to shape our identities around that rather than the God who created us. That's the problem in our culture. That's why we're so busy. We wanna feel important. Or even if we feel like we're drowning, like we're just trying to keep our heads above the water, everyone else around us is too, and so we think that's how it's supposed to be, like there's nothing else better. But the Psalms teach us something different. Psalm 150 says God is alive. God is worthy to be worshiped. God should be praised. God, remember him. Don't forget him. Don't neglect him. And there's a psalm for for whatever circumstances we feel like we're in emotionally, whether we're angry at God or we're angry at the world or we're frustrated with what's going on, if we're sad and depressed and grieving, if we're joyous and happy, like there's psalms, these songs that have been sung for centuries that God has given us to praise him, to remember him, to stir in our hearts when we feel busy, when we feel like we're drowning, to give us fresh air, to give us new life. And Psalm 150 caps off this book. So if you have a Bible, open up there. We're gonna start in verse one. It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. 
Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Something's a little repetitive. Hallelujah. Have you guys heard that word before? When's the last time you said that word? Or when's the last time you said praise the Lord? Because that's what hallelujah actually means. It comes from the Hebrew that's in this book right here, in this verse. It means praise the Lord. And it's, it's a command. It's, it's like when Kyle stands up here or this morning when Jack stands up here and he says, let's worship together. It's that kind of command where he's inviting you to join in. And so this psalm would have been used at the beginning of services for people to gather together, to remember why they're together, to worship God. And hallelujah, it's a phrase that's really built up of two things. Hallelujah is praise the Lord. So what's it mean to praise as I was thinking about it this week, I mean, praise, we use it all the time, especially as Christians. I feel like there's words we use that, that is kind of like just Christianese, right? The idea that like, we throw it around all the time, but we don't always actually define like what it means. And we just kind of get used to like saying. So we come and we go to church and we like praise God and, or we just even sang like praise the Lord, right? Praise him, praise, but what is, what is praise? I feel like we don't really live in a culture of praise anymore. I feel like we live in a culture of the opposite, a culture of criticism, a culture of of frustration, a a culture of of disdain. And so when we're called to praise, that's that's different. That's something that maybe we're not used to experiencing, maybe we're not used to doing. Because it's easy to jump on Yelp and get frustrated, like, oh, the waiter was terrible at this restaurant, you should never go there. But what does it mean to be praised? I mean, everything I see, like headlines, people I talk to, they don't feel like their boss appreciates them. They don't feel like their spouse appreciates them. They don't feel like their teachers appreciate the effort they're putting in. They don't feel like their coaches are appreciating what they're doing on the team, right? Praise is, is rare. Criticism, that's easy. Criticism is something that just comes out of us almost like natural, right? There's that sin issue again. It just like, just flows out like, oh, Lauren and I are talking. It's so easy for me to be critical. Like, oh, you always say that. That's not right of me to do. Rather than say, oh, you're so good at this. I'm so grateful for that you're like that. We don't really praise people. The only time I could think of that we do it regularly and, and where we could think about it like culturally is in a funeral. So you go to a funeral, maybe you've been to one you know, in the last couple of years and uh, in those services, there's always a group of people that kind of take one by one time, they stand up in front and they, they, they talk about their dad, Bob, right? And so the kids come up and, oh, Bob was so, so good. Like he, they maybe they don't call him Bob because that's kind of awkward, but like my dad, <laughs> my dad was so good, right? Like he, he made it to all my soccer games and like he was so kind and so loving and uh, he did this. He helped us move into our first apartment. He was so supportive. Like, and then the, the wife comes up, he was such a, such a good husband. Like I was so grateful that he provided for us or he kept us protected. We went on great vacations and trips or whatever Bob did. And then, you know, Bob's friend would come up and Bob loved Jesus and Bob loved his wife and Bob loved his truck in that order. And he'd get down and sit down and right. Like we talk about good things about people when they die. But when was the last time you just like sat across coffee with a friend and said, you know, you're so like thoughtful. You're so kind. I mean, maybe like you're funny, like that's pretty easy. Like someone makes us laugh, we laugh. Like, oh, you're so funny. 
Or maybe like if they look good, right? If they, they, they dress a certain way, like, oh, that looks, that looks cute on you. But we don't really live in a culture of praise. We don't live in a culture that looks to be positive and encouraging. And so when we're commanded to praise, it's this idea of literally eulogizing. That just means like good word, right? You is like a prefix for good. Logize uh, is a verb, but like, it just means good word. Um, it means to speak things about someone that are good. And who are we talking about? We're talking about the Lord. Now, if you have a Bible with you, it's probably written a little weird because it's gonna be like one big capital L and then little capital letters like O-R-D probably, or maybe all four just like capital letters. It's because the Yah and hallelujah refers to a personal name. So it's not just uh, the Lord. That's not the word there. Yah refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so what this Psalm is saying is praise the Lord. They say the Lord because they won't say Yahweh out of respect for, for God and the name that he had revealed to them. And so they say, praise the Lord. But who is that? This is the God who revealed himself to these people. Remember, this is in the Old Testament. So this is a Psalm written uh, before Jesus has come. This is a Psalm written to, to call the people of Israel to worship to remind them that this is the God who, who they know and who knows them, the God who has brought them into the promised land, the one true God whom they worship, no other gods, the one whom they know, the Lord, the one who's king and sovereign over all. You should praise him in his sanctuary, right? They have a temple in Jerusalem where the presence of God dwells. And so in this temple, they're there gathering to worship him but then also praise him in the heavens, right? Looking up to the skies everywhere over all creation. And, and, and even in this sense that when they're worshiping in the temple, that the angels around God and his throne room in heavens are worshiping with them. There's this all encompassing idea that they have this God whom they know, who knows them, that he is the Lord. And that when they gather in his temple, in his presence to worship him, that also his angels, his messengers, these other beings that are not human and yet are, are different than what we've experienced in this world. That they're worshiping with, with them. And we have this, this presence in which we should worship the Lord, but why? Why should we worship this God? Well, verse two, it says, praise him for his mighty deeds and praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him for what he's done and who he is. So who is he? This is the Lord. This is the sovereign ruler over all things. This is uh, the king. And he is worthy to be worshiped by his very nature. Right? For him to be God, he is worthy to be worshiped. In the very presence, there's a, there, it elicits out of us a response that if we were to see God face to face, we would have this desire to, to get down on our knees or to put our hands in the air to, to declare his greatness because of his very nature. Isaiah 6 gives us a picture of this. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament and he's sitting in the temple praying. And as he's praying, he has this vision of God on the throne. And the train of his robe is filling the whole temple around him. Right? And, and it's this picture in his mind that he starts to see. And he realizes in this presence of God that he's not worthy to be there. 
that his greatness, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness, his, his righteousness, his, his very being is so worthy to be worshiped that he does not desire, or he is not good enough to be in that presence. And his only desire is to declare that. He says, woe is me for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I am a sinner and God is good. God is righteous and I see that now and I should not be in his presence. His greatness is worthy to be worshiped. But it's not just his nature, it's also what he's done. He's shown his goodness. And the first thing is in all creation. He is the creator. What has he done? He's created everything around us. He's created the earth. He's created the land and the sea. He's created animals and plants. He's created the sun and the stars. He's created everything around us, including you and me. And he's breathed life into us. As Christians, we believe that all of this comes from nothing. And so does physics. But we believe God created it. And so the psalm says to worship him for what he's done. He is the creator. But he's not just the creator, he's the redeemer. And so for the Israelites, they recognize this problem of sin too. They recognize it. The world they live in is difficult and hard. In fact, they remember it's being so difficult and hard because at one point they were slaves in Egypt. There's a famine in the land that they lived in, which means they couldn't find food. They really probably couldn't find much water. And so they traveled and journeyed into Egypt. And by God's mercy, they were able to dwell there and have uh, the ability to, to find food and, and to drink and to, dwell, uh, to develop a town and to live there and continue to grow into this people. But eventually Egypt got a little worried. And so they started to suppress them. And after continuing to oppress them, they enslave them and they put them to work. They, they used their labor to build things and to continue to instruct, uh, construct the cities that they were trying to build. And slavery, bad thing, right? The Israelites didn't like that. And they were crying out to their God, why are you doing this? Why are you hurting us? Why have you forgotten us? But God hadn't forgotten them. He's the redeemer. And so when he reveals himself to Moses, he gives them this name, the Lord, Yahweh, in order to remind them that he's a personal God. And then he rescues them out of Egypt and takes them into a promised land, a land where they build the city of Jerusalem, where they build the kingdom of Israel, where they build the temple to worship the Lord. And so when they're singing this psalm, they're reminded that God is a redeemer, the rescuer, the one who brought them out of Egypt, who delivered them into this promised land. He is a God who cares. He's a God who loves. He's a God who is merciful. He is a God who sees us in our distress and takes us out of it. And really, God didn't just do it for them. He did it for us. Because God sees us even today in the distress that we have because of the sin in this world, because of the sin in our own hearts. And he reminds us again and again that he sent his son, Jesus, on the cross. The way that he saves by his blood is to rescue us and to redeem us, to bring us back to him to send us into a promised land of eternity that gives us a hope, a new city of Jerusalem where we dwell with God in his presence forever. That is the hope of the gospel, that the God who saves has saved us. And so when we think about this Psalm, we are called to praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because he has saved us. He's rescued us. He's given us freedom. Paul says that we're enslaved to sin. Without Jesus, we don't have a choice. 
We are stuck just continuing to fall back into old habits. We, we wanna do better. We wanna stop being so busy. We wanna be kinder to our spouse or our friends or our coworkers. We wanna do something differently in our lives and yet we continue to fall back into those old habits. We continue to go back to that sin. We continue to, to seek after the things that we just, we can't get rid of. Even if we don't like them. And of course, there's lots of things that we do like. We like getting drunk on Saturdays. We like hooking up with people. We like doing all these other things too that God says hurts us emotionally, spiritually, sometimes physically. Paul calls it slavery. He says we are slaves to sin. But in Christ, we've been set free from that slavery. We believe that Jesus has died on the cross. It's not just remembering that, that some guy in Israel like 2,000 years ago was murdered on a cross and, and somehow that's like an image of like revolution. This is a way that God has brought atonement, brought healing for our sin. And by having faith in him, the spirit works in us, changing us, giving us freedom that we can't experience without Jesus. And in that freedom, we begin to understand what it truly means to praise God. We begin to understand what it means to worship him. We begin to understand who he is in a way that we couldn't have known if he hadn't been a redeemer. Because no longer is he just mighty God who is maybe sovereign or maybe in control or maybe at work, but he is our rescuer. He loves us and we've experienced his love. We've encountered his love. It's freedom. Freedom from the, the sin and the temptation, but also freedom from the, the hurriedness and the busyness and the distractions and the idolatry of the culture we live in. And when we're exhausted, when we're tired, when we're, we're thinking about all these other things, the anxieties in our life, we have to remember that God has set us free. That we don't have the same, we don't have the same ties, we don't have the same chains to the things that everyone else around us has. We become more content with less sometimes. We become more generous when we have a lot. We become more open and, and willing to share. We become more desiring to love others because God has loved us. We are free. We become willing to slow down. We become willing to look to him first and then to the other things around us. It changes our lives. It changes our hearts. It changes our minds. It transforms us. Praise the Lord. And so how do we do that? How do we praise God for what he's done? Well, the first and foremost in this Psalm is with music. It's gathering together in his people. I'm gonna read it again. It, it, verse three, it says, praise him with trumpet sound. And that trumpet, think of like a ram's horn. So don't think of like, I don't know, little bugle boy. Like think of, <laughs> yeah. Think of like just this like, sound, declaring something is starting. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Two kinds of cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, Every time I read this, I just get this picture of like a music festival where you have like, I don't know, that small group like off in the corner where you got like the guitar player and like these few people like dancing kind of weird and like, like just doing their own thing. Like, but that's not really the picture here. It's not this like Woodstock like, or Woodstock 99 like kind of picture, right? Like it's, it's this picture that even has this, it's not just orderly. 
It's this picture of worship where, where people have gathered together, but, but there's intention and there's purpose. Like I said, the trumpet, it, it's like a ram's horn. It, it declares something is starting. And then you have these other, other instruments that are being played, but these instruments would have been played by specific people with like different types of roles in the society, like priests and Levites and, and other like soldiers and, and people that would have had opportunity to learn to play these instruments. And so you have this picture of all these people coming together to worship the Lord. And now they're playing, declaring his presence is coming, calling his presence to come uh, through the music that they're playing. And then you have like tambourine and dance for people who like, I don't know, have rhythm or people who don't have rhythm or can't, can't like sing or play anything like me, give me the tambourine. Like I can do that, right? Like, <laughs> like I'm in, right? But this is picture that's it's very orderly, right? Everybody gathers together, but it includes everything, your voices, your hands, your feet, like all these different instruments. People are coming together to worship the God who saves and everybody gets involved. And the beauty of that is that with this list, it's not just like, prescriptive, right? And the idea is it's describing what's happening and it has order to it, but it's not just that like you can only worship with tambourines, right? Or you can only worship with, with lutes and harps or only worship with these pipes, right? That, that's a cultural moment that they're describing. These are the things that they have in their society. These are the ways that they, they gather, the ways that they, they sing and they dance. They're just lifting up praises to God with what they have, and so for us, we get this image that we have this opportunity now that, that we should praise the Lord. Like, that's clear. It says it like 13 times, right? Praise the Lord. And we praise him with whatever we have. And so it, it's not like a, a, have you heard of the worship wars? Like this is a ridiculous thing to me. Like there's this idea that like, people are gonna argue over like, can you have an organ in your worship or a guitar? Or like, you know, should you sing with a choir? Should you not have any music at all? Like, no, like we should sing and, and play. And the beauty of it is we get to have this like cultural application. We get to see like, like when you worship in the United States, even we, we have a variety and a diversity of things, but also then when you go to Jamaica, when you go to Ethiopia, when you go to Mexico, like different languages are getting used, different songs are getting sung, different rhythms, like the, different melodies, like all kinds of things get to work. And God is hearing this like symphony of worship with all of these different things being brought together, which might sound like this cacophony of chaos to us, but like to him, he discerns it as this beauty proclamation of his goodness, of the people that love him. And something about that image is what we're gonna experience in heaven, about all of these cultures, all of these people coming together to praise the Lord, to be in his presence and to worship him, to experience that as one people. And music, we should adjust and, and use and apply in ways that are appropriate for our culture and our context because it has this power to stir us, right? These are psalms, these are songs and poems, hymns that we would, that we would have to, to worship the Lord and we should use those because songs help us remember things. You guys remember like your favorite songs from like driving to school when you were 16? Right, you might not right now, but like if you heard it on the radio, immediately it takes you back to that car, right? That beat up, like whatever. If you had a nice car in high school, cool. But most of us didn't, <laughs> right? Um, right? It, music like stirs in us and it, and it links us to memories. And so when, when we're thinking about these things, like there's a, 
There's a gathering, right? A, a cultural opportunity, a communal opportunity for us to lift our voices together. But then there's also a teaching opportunity where God uses us to instill in us that he is worthy to be praised. He is the redeemer. He is the creator. He is the Lord. He is the one that we can rest in. He's the one that we find hope in. He's the one that we worship. I'll close with this. A few, a few uh, years ago, my grandma passed away. Um, but before that, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so eventually she had to be put into a particular care facility for people with uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And so she couldn't really remember anything, didn't really talk much, um, and eventually not at all. But once a week, my grandpa and I would go to this little like chapel service they had. And so um, we would gather with these people who well, pretty much me and my grandpa, the person that led it, uh, were the only people that didn't have some type of affliction. And then everyone else was a patient there dementia, Alzheimer's, varying degrees of, you know, um, health. And yet when they would start the music, these people who, who could maybe talk a little bit, none of them were carrying on conversations, would be able to recognize the melody. And most of them would be able to just from memory sing the words to, to familiar hymns, Jesus paid it all, Jesus loves me. Did you know Jesus loved me has like three verses? I didn't, but they did. <laughs> because music instills in our minds and our hearts something that, that just reading it, just hearing it, just talking about it doesn't. It stirs our emotions. It points us to God. And something in our brains even works to where it helps us remember him. It helps us remember, even in the times of difficulty, even in the times of stress, even when we're exhausted, to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this church. I'm grateful for the community that you've brought together. God, for everyone who's willing to serve, for everyone who's here to worship, for everyone who's not here and, and uh, who is with family or friends enjoying their time away, God, we just ask that you would help us to remember you wherever we are, to remember that you are a God worthy to be praised, that you are good, that you are a redeemer, and that you love us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.